Welcome to episode 46 of the Camerosity podcast, the world's one and only open source film. No, no, scrub that. The world's one and only open source digital photography podcast. My name is Robot Theo, and we have a great show for you. But before we get to that, let's do some introductions with some of my organic co-hosts. Firstly, someone who likes to use a magnet on Sony Digicams to make them shoot infrared. From the Midwest USA, Mike Ekman. Mike, I hear you are having a love affair with your new Nikon Z5. So how does it compare to your recent shooting with the Nikon E2? Uh, there is quite a bit of difference in the image quality and capabilities between the Z and the E series. But it's not Z, it's Z. No, it is Z. From the alligator swamps of Florida, and who is now permanently attached to his new Voigtland is superb so it does not go missing again. Anthony Rue, how has it been shooting with the superb Anthony? And will you be trading it in for a DG cam any day soon? It's been superb. I love that camera. I'm having a blast with it, and it has you know, wonderful results. And uh, no, there's no way in hell I would trade that for a Digicam. Uh, not for all the Digicams in Sydney. Just wait until the AI uprising. Next, the man, the legend, the nightmare on many people's wallet. From the camera in Nirvana in Ohio, Paul Reibold. Paul, I hear that you are now trying to use psychic powers to convince Anthony to give the Fiji G617 back to you but failing that. Are you going to join two Lumix cameras together as an alternative? That's a possibility, but you know, I, I'm thinking now that I, uh, I just picked up a 58mm Grandagon. Uh, that's been moved out of a Graflex XL mount. And I think I'm going to order one of the Dora Goodman 612 or 617 cameras and uh, see how that works out since I have very little hope of getting that camera back from, from Anthony. I doubt you will neither. The Goodman cameras are nice though. Finally, from all the way down under and where the sun shines brightly, the city of Sydney. We have the split personality collector of analog and digital cameras, Theo Panagopoulos. Theo, a Digicam's the new coolest thing on the block or just a fad? I think they're one of the coolest things on the block, actually. They're a lot of fun and I love using them. But, you know, one thing I want to veer away from is the glitches. I think that's a step too far going down the, the glitch route. Yeah, no one wants to be associated with the glitches. Just joking. We love everyone. Okay, last week we had a bumper episode talking about Marmia cameras, so much so that we had jammed lines, with our new digital lines installed and one of the hottest topics in photography trends. We will be talking about digital cameras and digicams, so let's let in the callers and I will hand back the show to the regular hosts. All right, thanks, Robot Theo. Uh, we have a couple of people in the waiting room. Let's let them in. All right, looks like we have a bunch of returning guests. Uh, back from Morris, Mr. Brian Howard. Brian, welcome back. Good to see you guys. Andrew Smith, welcome back, Andrew. How you doing? 
Adabak! Adabak is back! It's been a while, buddy. How you been? We'll just pretend like he said hello. <laughs> Greg. Hey, Greg, how you doing? Good, good. Good to be back. Awesome. And then Mark Faulkner. Mark, as always, it's good to see you. You all as well. All right. So we did, uh, Robot Theo hinted, uh, last last episode was our Mamiya episode, which went really, really well. When we did the Greyflex episode a couple back, we uh, broke our own personal record for most listens in the first week. And we I didn't think we'd break it for at least a while, but it only took us two episodes. So people really love Mamiya. Mamma Mia. I guess is, is the right title for that episode. So I'm glad we thought of it. But as promised at the end of that one, we said we were going to talk about digital. Robot Theo gave us a nice introduction to kind of lead into some of the topics we have here. We don't really have a specific agenda, you know, in terms of what we want to talk about. I just kind of feel like we could just discuss anything. A quick uh, bit of disclaimer out of the way, you know, the four hosts, myself, Paul, Theo, uh, well, I guess five, Robot Theo and, and Anthony, you know, all of us shoot digital. We all shoot film. We do both. You know, um, we, we love both mediums. We don't think that one's more superior than the other. It's amazing to me that in 2023, there's still people that make that argument. I think it's fine for people who choose to only shoot digital or for people who only choose to shoot film because that's just what they like. That's awesome. For most people though, uh, some combination of both is is great. To me, it's it's no different than mixing and matching large format, medium format, 35 millimeter, sub miniatures. You know, they're all different types of cameras that have different strengths. And sometimes I, I want to shoot digital. We're, our intent here is just to kind of have some fun. Well, well let me, let me let me start because there's Brian is actually holding up something that we were just talking about in the Camerosity private back chat before and that my introduction to digital was the Apple Quick Take camera. It was I came to the University of Florida in 92 to work on a hybrid PhD between film studies and the fine arts program. And they had an early digital lab where they had a closet full of Apple Quick Take cameras. But that is what you had up there. Was it a Brian? Yep. This is a, uh, this is actually a quick take uh, 150. The second I have a quick take hundred that I actually liberated from my high school back in the day and have had ever since. <laughs> and uh, I've got a quick take uh, 200 as well, which is the different later form factor, a little smaller, I think was a maybe rebrand of a Fuji camera, if I'm not mistaken. Whereas this was, I think, developed by Kodak. Yes. Along with the DC 40 and 50. So, so one thing I was wondering somewhere, I have a shoebox full of floppies with photos in the quick tape format. Have you gone back to look at, because apparently you needed a uh, Apple serial cable to be able to access the camera. Uh, good luck finding a computer that you can do that with right now. It turns out that my other hobby is actually Macs from the late 90s. So oh. I'm good that department, but it, it's a process. And it I like to say it has all of the disadvantages of film and none of the advantages of digital. The hardest part about getting one of these to work though is actually finding a memory card because they take a um, very special kind of memory card um, and the only other thing that i think used those uh, is a series of like roland synthesizer <laughs> so you can imagine that the synthesizer crowd is pushed so you know you can get the camera for next to nothing getting a working memory i think it's a smart media card a five volt smart media card that's like basically unobtainium i guess that's one of the challenges of the early cameras isn't it it's actually being able to get them to connect i see mark faulkner's holding up a sony mavica i've got one right here actually i've got the diskette version which one's this yours is the, this is the dual media so it has the diskettes which are actually easier to find than the memory stick for this thing which took me a good two or three months to fit find one on ebay and it cost me way more i mean this came essentially free in a 
box of cameras I got off eBay, but the memory, you know, the memory stick for it was was not cheap. And I think that's kind of the biggest problem I find is not not just the storage media for these, but the charging for getting batteries up and running for a lot of these is an issue. Like, cause, like this evening, I was like, oh, sure, I'll charge up a few of these and should do some show and tell. Really, the only one I easily got charged up is this big old Canon EOS one. And all the smaller ones, like I know I've got chargers for them, but they're in a box somewhere and there's no good way to, oh, that's, see, I'm kind of jealous now. <laughs> I, I just for, for the listeners, I've just held up my uh, Mavic and showed uh, Mark the screen in the background. It's even got a diskette in it. Actually, an interesting story with these, and, and this goes across all digicams. When you buy new used film cameras, generally the film's missing. Occasionally you'll find some film in there and find something interesting. But with the digicams, nine times out of ten, they've left the memory card in there and you're actually going to find some interesting pictures and so on. You know, I recently got a little digicam and it actually had pictures of someone giving birth, literally the head coming out sort of pictures. So <laughs> I'm not posting those online, wow. of course. But um, with this with this Mavica, it came with the original Mavica diskette and it had someone's wedding loaded on it. So it was actually, I got to actually download the pictures, few were corrupted, of someone's wedding. Imagine taking some your wedding pictures with one of these things, which is, what, 0.3 of a megapixel? That'd be quite amazing. Or it's worth the, uh, the quick take 100. Even if you reduce the image in print to, you know, maybe two inches by two inches, would be clearly pixelated when like printed in newsprint. It was like not very good quality by today's standards. Look great on an SC2 though. You had mentioned the power supply issues and that's that's definitely an issue because most digital cameras, at least the pro ones from the 90s and very early 2000s already had started using like lithium batteries, which are, you know, no longer viable and they're, they're types that aren't made anymore. I have a review coming out tomorrow. By the time this podcast is released, it will have already been released, but it's of the Nikon E2 NS that Paul loaned me. And that had a battery, but the batteries just don't hold a charge anymore. And you can't even get replacement batteries. But thank the maker, the one that Paul had came with the AC adapter that actually plugged into the battery compartment. And then you could just plug it into the wall. So I did a bunch of test shots of it in my basement. And I'm like, well, I want to go outside. So I got one of those cigarette lighter to AC inverters you can plug into your car. And then it had a really, really long cord. So then I plugged the AC adapter for the camera into that thing. So I was driving around in my Subaru, like holding the camera out the window, taking pictures of things outside so that I could at least get some outdoor shots from it. That's kind of a saving grace. I have a Canon ZapShot, which is one of those video floppy cameras from the 80s. And that came with an AC adapter too. Phil, uh, Phil just joined. Uh, he just held one up there too. It, you know, that's about your only option for some of these early electronic cameras if you could find them with the ac adapters which a lot of them seem to have like i don't know if they were trying to be forward thinking maybe one day the batteries would no you don't think so battery life was so shitty back then that, yeah yeah that's that's that would have been my second choice that's that's kind of like almost a prerequisite anymore these days because uh like i mean you could get the the early 2000s early mid 2000s all the point and shoots a lot of them came with double a batteries but you're not going to find a an early DSLR, you know, something that a pro might have actually used. It's going to run off of, you know, alkaline batteries. It would have had some kind of proprietary thing that. Can't you get replacement batteries? Because there's a couple of places I buy from when I get the Digicams and I get replacement batteries. They're obviously not branded Nikon or Minolta or anything like that. 
but you can get replacements. Like, like you, Mike, I've been shooting the Minolta RD-175, very early DSLR. And uh, luckily, it came, you know, I got it lent to me and it's got a whole bunch of batteries with it. I recently posted an article on that on Photo Thinking. But it does chew through them pretty quickly. But we, we've got a couple of places locally here that you can buy batteries that replace the, the existing ones. I mean, there's certainly an aftermarket for a lot of batteries. I mean, you can go, you know, the mid to late 2000 Nikon, Canon, SLRs. You can still usually get replacement batteries for those. But you go back too far, it's very, very hit or miss about whether or not, mostly miss. Now, there are some very crafty people, some third-party shops that will rebuild you can take, so this is a battery pack for a Kodak Pro DCS, and you can get these rebuilt. I don't know what it costs, but they literally just take the casing apart, desolder the cells, and replace them. So if if you're really, really motivated to shoot an old digital camera and you cannot find a replacement battery pack, that might be an option. But I mean, I would be prepared to pay though. Well, Mike, I think the, the thing is that that's true. What you're saying is all correct on the high end stuff on the cameras like the, the uh, RD-175 and the E2N and those cameras, it's definitely hard because they didn't make enough of them for somebody to care to make batteries today. But on the mass market cameras, going back as far as Canon EOS 10Ds and Nikon D100s, even the Olympus E20s and E10s, those cameras, you can you can find batteries. There are plenty of batteries available. It's only the high-end stuff that, that you have trouble finding. I only know of one consumer-grade camera that you cannot find a battery for. That's one of the Leica Digiluxes, and I believe it was the Digilux 2. Now, that the one that Mark is holding up there, that's a Fuji. That camera was made by Fuji. Yeah. Those batteries are still available. I believe it's an NP1. They they do still make those. NP80. Those are you can still find those. But the Digilux 2 Digilux 2 was made by Panasonic. Oddly enough, because Panasonic sold quite a few of them too. There is just simply no source for them. And I know because I wound up with one of the cameras that was not saleable because I couldn't get a battery that worked. For anybody who wants to try to DIY it, I think one important distinction is whether your battery has two contacts or more. It's two, it's probably just a simple dumb positive and negative. All you got to do is match the voltage. You're good to go. If it's more, the camera probably has some additional circuitry that interfaces with the battery. And that's a lot harder to reverse engineer and kind of make a mock-up that will get you through. Mike, I have a uh, Sony Mavica 5000, you know, we'll to use the floppy disk. And somebody butchered a uh, AC adapter to it. So it goes AC to DC. So as long as you're plugged into the wall, you're good to go. Nice. So moving away from batteries a little bit, Brian, you would start and explain how difficult it can be to get some of the information across from the camera on there. I mean, floppy disks are pretty straightforward. Some of the memory cards are trickier, but some of the really early stuff had PC MCIA cards, which you know the RD one seventy five did. How do you go about getting some of those, like the like the quick take across? Yeah, so the uh, the quick take, you basically, generally speaking, I think you have kind of two options. One is to try to remove the storage if it's removable and attack the storage independent of the camera, and the other option is to try to go through the camera. For these older quick takes, they have a serial port, and so if you want to use one of these, you 
basically need a Mac that's old enough to have a serial port and the software to interact with it. And the software uh, usually is available. They're kind of archives of drivers and things like that. That's not too hard to get, but you, you're, you're in it for a whole Mac if you want to do that. And if you try to just extract the contents of the card, then you have the issue of conversion. And you probably could solve that with emulation of an old Mac or something where you can use the software without having to physically buy a box. Those those were Q2, QTK files, weren't they? So they weren't JPEGs. No, they definitely weren't JPEGs. I don't remember, honestly. What the I, think they, I think the Apple called them a TK. That's correct. The final version, the 200, which I believe was 96, was the first version to have JPEG. If I remember correctly, the 100, there was no storage, removable storage. It was stored on board on the camera and could only be downloaded through the serial cable. The 150, I never used one, but I believe they might've had a removable storage. The 200 definitely did. But yeah, the early version, the version that I used, you had to have a serial cable and a dedicated Mac to, to download it. So Brian, you said that the one you have takes smart media. Now there were smart media cards. This one is, this is the card that Fuji and Olympus used and it's smart media, but these are 3.3 volt. Yes. You're just five volts. So the, but it, it isn't backward compatible. Your camera won't take the 3.3 volt. No, it'll fry it. It'll destroy. Uh, so just to clarify, the, I believe Anthony was correct. The 150 and the 100 have built-in storage. Uh, you can't take the card out. The 200 is the one I was thinking of that uses this 5-volt smart media, and it's got a little access port there, but it is not compatible with the 3-volt smart media. So, so the question that I would have, you know, because like a lot of us here had these cameras when they first came out, and I mean, I remember going from the quick take to uh, like some of the early Canon Elfs. And it seems like it was the combination of, of JPEG and, you know, removable storage media actually made these more viable, you know, because a lot of, yeah, a lot of these early cameras, you know, they, uh, uh, you know, they were kind of self-obsolete within three or four years. Kind of a shame because they were fun to play with, but it really seems like 96, 97 was the, was the, the key year. Uh, that if you're looking at these these early cameras pre 96 97 might be a rough ride post you got a pretty good chance of finding something that you can use well the thing what happened was when they went to the consumer grade cameras the first major consumer grade cameras were were started out with compact flash card only olympus and fuji used smart media and the problem was smart media had a lot of exposed contacts. The, the card itself had, this was wide open. It was too easy to damage it. But the big problem was this had very limited storage. I think the largest smart media card you could get, I believe was 32 megabytes. So, you know, as resolution grew on the cameras, you, could, you just didn't have enough storage. So both Olympus and Fuji had to switch over to Compact Flash, and which was a whole different series of problems because I, I don't know how many, I'm sure you've all seen Compact Flash cards. There are 50 holes and inside the camera are 50 pins. And that's just a recipe for disaster because if you get any kind of crud inside the holes on the card, or if, if the card is not properly made, the tolerances, you can bend the pins inside the body. So it was exceptionally critical. The most important thing you could ever tell anyone who's using a compact flash card is when you install the card in the camera, push from the very center. Do not push from either edge of the card because if it's if the card has any sort of leeway inside that chamber, the receiver, it'll bend the pins. Yeah, Quick Take 200 does have an AV out port for just composite video. And that actually, this was my first webcam uh, using that in a 6100 AV card. Card. But that's another way to get images off of uh, of that one. Well, and then even after you jump through all those hoops, 
and you physically get the data, let's say you have it on your computer, there's still no guarantee it's going to be readable. And if it is readable, if it's going to look good, because on the, the E2, the Nikon, it could output JPEGs, which I had no problems with, but it also output TIFF files. And I thought, great, TIFF, that shouldn't be a problem. Nope, nothing I've ever tried could get it to work. I have uh, Adobe Photoshop Creative Suite, uh, couldn't read it. I tried Lightroom, I tried GIMP. I read online, you have to use whatever software, Nikon, you know, NXV or whatever it was called um, to actually read those files in. And I just, I, I was like, you know, if the JPEGs are good enough, but Theo, didn't you say on the Minolta that the files you were getting looked like overexposed by like five stops? Three, three stops. Yeah. It was like the, the color profile was off or something. Yeah. Even when I went back to the, the original software on a little XP laptop, which believe it or not actually had sitting around, I found... They're coming through overexposed. Now, I think it's a combination of that and probably the camera does need a little bit of work done to it to to Okay, um, so maybe the camera it. was so, doing that. Yeah, thing. but what I did find was, oh, man, you, you, you go off by half a stop and, and the, the highlights are gone. There's no recovery of those highlights. There's no dynamic. Those cameras had no dynamic range at all. You'd have you'd have blood or muddy blacks and blown out whites in practically every image. I guess that's what gives it that look and probably sort of moves us into into the next discussion is because we're starting to hit the very late 90s or early 2000s now and we're starting to see a lot of innovation happening with with the cameras and these are the ones that people are starting to get quite interested with now because of the particular look. I've got a Coolpix 995 here in front of me and I have to say it outputs 3.34 megapixels. Don't forget that 0.34 megapixel. And it, it is a hell of a lot of fun to shoot with this thing. And I show it to people and they've gone, wow. And then I, I flick around the actual lens and you can do a selfie and and they can't believe that you could do a selfie with a camera from 2000. So, but these have a, a really interesting look to them, which people seem to really like now. That camera was was very popular because it was easy to hook it to a, a telescope. That was, that was the big deal about the 900, 995. They made a telescope adapter for it that was very, very easy to adapt. Well, in, in regards to the look, of earlier digital cameras. Like there's there's two different ways to look at that. And we already talked about the very early ones that were just clearly inferior. They have a look just because the technology was so early on. But once you got to about, for, for sake of argument, let's start with the D1. Nikon's D1 came out in 99. You start with that, you move up to probably the mid to late 2000s. The sensor technology, if you ever look at any old camera reviews, you'll always see, it'll tell you the type of sensor that the camera has. And there were two primary kinds. There was CCD, charge couple device, which is what pretty much all early digital cameras use. And then sometime around 08, 09, maybe 2010, the industry almost at once switched over to CMOS sensors. Now, this is beyond my knowledge. It's beyond this podcast. I don't fully grasp the differences, but I can tell you that there is a difference. People talk about richer colors on the CCD sensors, lower noise on the CCD sensors. Less battery life. Le much less battery life, yeah. Uh, CCD sensors were power hogs. That's, um, I think, Brian, you had said a lot of those earlier digital cameras were just power hogs for a variety of reasons, one of which was the sensor. So the, the newer sensors, the CMOS sensors were much more 
power friendly. They were easier to manufacture. They did ultimately allow for higher ISO. You know, we, we look at a, a modern digital mirrorless and you could shoot ridiculous 128,000 ISO images and they look better than a 1600 ISO on a 15 year old camera. So they've come a long way. And, and maybe, you know, if you were to do an AB comparison between a modern camera versus one from 2002, I, I don't know if I'd tell the difference. But when you do look at the first decade of the 21st century, the cameras with the CCD, the charge coupled device sensors, there is a difference. They have, they're, they're just more accurate colors, more vivid. Fuji was big with the super CCD where they added in, I think a fourth color, but that, that's a big difference too. So you'll, there's whole subsets of collectors of early digital cameras that are just rabid fans of the CCD cameras. So if that's what you're looking for, and maybe you don't want to spend big bucks on something, you find an old Olympus or an old Panasonic or something, look at what type of sensor it has. And if it's a CCD, chances are it's going to make fairly decent images. Mike, if I can hijack for a second, I'd, I'd kind of like to do a quick little sort of mini lightning round of what was the oldest digital camera that you used that you really first considered as, yeah, this is it. This one, this one's viable. I can shoot with, this is the camera that I can use that maybe will have me put down my film camera. Uh, and I know that for me, it was around 1999 and I was working in the dive industry and I was having to do a lot of surface photography and uh, came across the Sony DSC 505, which was the sort of like the Nikon cool pics that had the the crazy uh like beer can zeiss lens that swiveled off to the side that you can swivel all the way around and i used that camera for so much catalog work i used it for advertising work i i put together half page ads in rodale's scuba diving magazine and nobody ever once said that wasn't shot on film or that looks pixelated you know so for me that sony uh was really the first camera that i used it was a digital camera that sort of like showed me that there was a future that didn't involve film so i'm curious if other people had that same sort of experience for me it would be the canon powershot s2 is it was one of the super zoom cameras that's a little bit later but i i bought that in i think 05 and you know i had had a couple cheaper digitals before that that were fun you know and and the the novelty of not having to develop film but it was a novelty but when i got that canon that was when i was like holy cow this this looks great for me for me it was a, a two-pronged one was the what you call family and casual pictures uh where I, I started to to realize that you know you don't necessarily need to be carrying a film camera around at that point to to enjoy and and my first one was this little beast here that the, the the Canon PowerShot S45. Unbeknownst to me at that point, it shot RAW, and I had no idea what RAW and JPEG and all this this different stuff were, but I really loved the pictures from it. So I reckon I used it for the first number of years without even realizing it did RAW. And then, interesting enough, the actual battery charger died. I thought the camera had died, so I put it aside for close to 14 years, didn't really think about it, came across it the other, you know, the other month and thought, oh, I wonder if it works. And I thought, I know a bit more about these now. So I got a new battery charger for it. And this thing lives. So for 14 years, it sat there in the cupboard thinking it was broken. So it's a lot of fun. But the real one that really started to sort of click into shape for me was the Nikon D300. At that point, quite late to the party in that respect. But I could keep using my lenses, my Nikkor lenses on, on this beast get really good results. It's got a great sensor to it. And it was just a very easy transition. The one thing I did struggle with was the, the different sensor sizes. 
because suddenly my wide angle lenses weren't wide any longer. Ah, crop sensor. Yes. So I think that that's probably one of the first things people had to start getting used to when, when we started getting digital photography. It took me a long time because I started, I sold these things when they first came out and I stocked basically every digital camera, every model from every manufacturer. And I never took any of them seriously. So I got to shoot them all, but you know, it was a, it was a question of, I shoot a picture and yeah, that's nice. And then you delete it. I never saved anything because I didn't, I, it just was nothing there that was, I just didn't consider it to be, you know, something that was terribly useful. When the Nikon D100 came out, I began to get a little bit more comfortable with them, even though like Theo said, the, the crop sensor was a problem because I'm a wide angle shooter. So I, I, I shot with the D100, then I shot with the D1, the D2. And then finally, when they came out with the full frame sensor in the D3, I was fine. I began to embrace it and, and uh, usually had two of them that was in my own personal stable. And so I could use my 14 millimeter lens and, and uh, I was still good with it. But like Leo said about the 505, the first one I ever really took seriously was a 707, uh, which is just the, the next version up from the from the 505. You know, Paul, it's funny because you know, like I was, I was deep in the dive industry at the time and picked up a D100 specifically because, you know, the company I worked for, Halcyon, we manufactured uh, H HDI and uh, HMI lighting for, you know, cave exploration. And we did a lot of work with IMAX uh, underwater photography, doing HMI underwater studio lighting. And so worked up a trade with a company called Light in Motion for a custom modified housing for the D100 that could go down to 400 feet deep because I needed that for the cave exploration that we were doing. So I shot hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of images with that's I was holding up a micro drive earlier which was like a little hard drive compact flash card that could go in that D100 because once you put it in a housing you go down 300 feet deep you know you're not swapping cards so you needed to put as much as possible onto a card and uh, for me that D100 was revelatory because I shot everything raw because uh, you know underwater there's so much color correction that has to go down and it was it was camera raw plus genuine fractals allowed me to do just phenomenal work with uh with that d100 you had mentioned crop sensor there's a, a bunch of different sizes of crop sensor but the most common is APS-C it's the one you still see a lot today does anybody know the origins of what the size of APS-C what like where that came from what short-lived APS APS that's right so adva the, the 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 film we got to have a film correlation here but Kodak's advanced photo system the APS Advantix cameras that were popular in the late 90s when they started making the first crop sensors they just said hey let's just make it this size so that that legacy lives onto today so the C stood for conventional some say classic conventional yeah but that was that's why it's that size that's where they got that from most of them were the same same size sensor the nikon was a 1.5 crop factor and the canons were 1.6 yeah they're very they're not exactly the same but i think people still say apsc though i think yeah it's the same it's it's a it's just a descriptor you, you basically have your sub one inch which are going to be in your point and shoots then you have the one inch sensors so the those sony's I, I was hoping to do a big reveal of the 828, but since you guys already mentioned the 707 and the 505s, those are all one-inch sensors. Sony was big on that. Then you had the Micro Four Thirds. Well, it was originally just Four Thirds, and then Micro Four Thirds, and then you had APS-C, and then eventually you get up to the full frame, or if you're a Nikon, to be FX size sensors. You mentioned the legacy of linking it back to APS. Interesting enough, Olympus linked their Micro Four Thirds cameras back to the half-frame cameras 
was with the pen labeling as well. So the, the, the manufacturers were linking it back based on, on the sizes so people can equate to it. Well, and the pen film, the pen F SLR lenses are extremely popular to be adapted to the pen F digital cameras because the sensors are almost exactly the same. Plus those pen F film lenses were incredibly sharp. So you're going to get excellent image quality plus the novelty of Olympus and Olympus. I, I think actually the, the micro for thirds was a, a groundbreaking situation where Panasonic and Olympus did get together because when they when they first released things like the GF1, I mean, this was, this was basically a fully manual controlled, full option lens changing camera that literally fits in the palm of your hand. And I don't think we'd got to that point before. I think Brian's holding one up as well. Yeah. On the topic of crop factor, the Pentax Q should get a, a call out for having insane like 5.5x crop factor and the shallowest flange distance of basically anything. You can mount like demount cine lenses to this from like old Bolex. Uh, the, there's like no depth at all to the to the sensor. So you get some extreme like zooms and uh, it's a it's a wonderful camera for anybody who's into adapting stuff as long as you don't mind, you know, using it for astrophotography with a 5x zoom. It couldn't, it Q, couldn't you get those, uh, you could kind of order them in custom colors, if I remember correctly? Because you don't see those anymore, but I, I remember seeing them. They discontinued them. There were four models, I believe, the Q, the Q7, the Q10, and the Q something S. Two of them had shared a uh, crop factor. The other two had a slightly larger sensor. I think the 10 maybe in the S1 had this larger sensor. But yeah, they discontinued them uh, uh, pretty quickly after they launched. Kind of a shame. I've explored some of those models and you're having the exact same problem with those cameras as you have with film cameras and that everybody's taking the lenses off of them. And to buy the body, you might be able to pay, you know, a, a reasonable price for them, but to get an original lens that will autofocus in some of those bodies, you're going to pay double, sometimes triple the price of the body just to get it. I mean, yeah, you could get an adapter and put an old manual focus lens on it, but then you got the lens that's five times larger than the camera. Is what is it? The GF GF one? No, that was that was the one I held up. The GF one, the microphone, those one. Yeah, the GF one. Yeah, the Pentax Q, I've looked at those two, and you can never find them with the lenses. And when you do, people are asking six, seven hundred bucks for them. Yeah, that's that's because um, a lot of the GF1s came with the 20 millimeter 1.7 lens, which still gets used a fair bit. It equates to 40 millimeter, but it is an extremely sharp and popular lens. And and people just can't get enough of it. So instead of buying a new one, they get, they buy an old one. And I mean, I, I, I use it on my GX7 now and I bought the GF1 God knows when. So, and took it on holidays with me recently. It is that sharp and that good. So we've sort of gone through a few few areas there in the crop sensors, but there was obviously a bit of a tussle going on between mirrorless and DSLRs, which has probably come to a head in the last couple of years in terms of finalizing that battle. That was a bit of a, quite a big game changer it made it a lot more accessible to everybody there was some pioneers on that especially around the micro four thirds and then fuji and that's where fuji came into into play and i really i think it really cemented them in the in the camera market i, I talked to some fuji shooters and i'll tell you what you don't want to say a bad thing about their camera they'll they'll um they'll come at you so so they're, they're great cameras they're adapted and because they're a crop sensor that's not overly cropped like the micro four thirds they seem to be quite popular with adapting the old lenses with the film simulations that Fuji provides, you end up with some amazing results. I think, Mark, you're holding up one at the moment. 
Yes. Yeah, this is, I used, primarily used an XT2. I love the Fujis. I, for a while, I was using the Olympus, like the EPL series ones, because, you know, the color rendition was pretty nice on those as well. But once I started using this and getting a better image quality out of it, and the, and as you said, the film simulations are are wonderful on these. And, and the ability to, there's so many different lenses available as well, and they work well adapting old glass, which is also a nice, nice feature. Um, but certainly, I mean, that's, that's the one I use if I'm shooting, like, really nice stuff. Honestly, though, for like an everyday pocketable camera, the Lumix uh, LX3 is like my favorite one to carry when I'm just going out and about because it produces amazing imagery for the size and and it's just it's a really well built camera. I have to agree with you, Mark, on the the uh, Fuji. I when I retired in 2010, I was going to change systems and I ordered. I got a couple X Pro One and I ordered basically every lens they had at that time, which was maybe five or six lenses. And I, I liked it a lot, but I really wanted to shoot some of the old vintage lenses. And the, the EVF one, the X-Pro one, just was not good enough for me to be able to see to focus it. I mean, the quality was excellent, but I just could not focus it. So I, I went over to the XT ones, which was an improved electronic viewfinder, and I, I found I could focus it. But in the house right now, I think we have, between my wife and myself, there are seven Fuji bodies, and I, I have two uh, Sony A7R2s that I shoot. And those are strictly for vintage lenses. I don't even, I have no autofocus or no modern lenses for the, uh, for the Sony. I do have a full set of the Zeiss lenses for the Fuji. I think a lot of people, the, the hang up they had with the mirrorless is, is there were, there was just a certain subset of people that they could not give up an optical viewfinder. They, they just did not want an EVF. Uh, certainly the early EVFs weren't quite as good. I've shared my opinion, you know, privately and publicly. I ended up selling a Sony a7 II for as fantastic of a camera as that is. It does a lot of really, really nice things. I had a Fuji like Paul and a Fuji just level for level, they're EVFs were better than Sony's were. Now, the current models may be. I don't have the money for a current model Sony A7R or whatever they're called, but Fuji just hit it out the park with the ergonomics, the controls, the vintage kind of look that appeals to, you know, old school camera collectors like me. The image quality was fantastic. The EVFs were fantastic. I'm a fan of focus peaking. I know some people don't like to use that. They would prefer to do the super zoom like the digital zoom to be able to see things in focus, but a good camera that has a great EVF and focus peaking to me is, is perfect for adapting vintage lenses. And I just didn't feel that the Sony was quite on the same level as the Fuji, but Fuji doesn't have an affordable full frame option. And apart from adapting vintage lenses, I don't give a shit about full frame crop sensor. You know, the fact that we're getting amazing image qualities out of those small cameras uh, proves you don't have to have a big sensor. You know, anybody who says they can see the difference in image quality between a crop sensor and a full frame, I don't believe it. But if you want to retain the correct focal length, if you want to mount that Helios 44 and maximize the swirly bokeh and you like the vignetting that old lenses sometimes do, you're cutting all that out when you mount it to a crop sensor digital camera. So for that purpose and that purpose only, I wanted to go full frame. I wasn't happy with the a7. Fuji doesn't have an affordable, I don't even think, do they even have an FX yet? No, well, they went to the G. Much the medium format, yeah. Yeah, so they just skipped it entirely, uh, which hey, good for them, right? They, clearly, the people they know what they're doing. But I went with the Z5, the Nikon Z5. I can I can blame Christopher May. He's not here, but he posts in our group a lot. And uh, I I, I found with the Z5. To me, it has the EVF. It's just as good as the Fuji's was. 
It does a great job with focus peaking. The image quality is fantastic, you know, FX. Plus, if you want to adapt this, the Nikon Z, the flange distance, I think is the shortest of any of the major mirrorless. I don't know if someone can correct me there, but it's definitely shorter than Sony is. And how I know that is I had already started to buy a selection of lens adapters for the Sony E-mount. I had one for like Alpa lenses. And when I switched to Nikon, I'm like, shit, I got to buy all new adapters again. But they don't make an Alpa to Nikon Z mount. There's, that's the one shortcoming if you want to adapt to the Nikon Z mount is the, the, there's not the, quite the selection of adapters out there. But you can actually get a Sony E to Nikon Z adapter. So you're going digital mirrorless to digital mirrorless. And the adapter is fairly thin, but you still got to account for that. But thankfully, the Nikon is so short, you can actually mount Sony E mount genuine lenses and adapted lenses to the Nikon using a Sony E adapter and you still get infinity focus. So that's another advantage there too. But if you're really still hung up on wanting an optical viewfinder, your only option is really to stick with the DSLR. But in one other advantage, since we talked about it earlier, is battery life. You're going to get way better battery life with still a DSLR than any mirrorless. I remember my old uh, Nikon D7000 that thing could go a whole weekend, you know, and the battery still had more than half its charge. Whereas, you know, I walk around with the Fuji, the Sony, the the Nikon, I, I have spare batteries with me anywhere I go. Actually, there is one optical viewfinder on digital cameras and that's the Leicas because they, I believe they still use the, the M8s, the M9s, M10s, they still use an optical viewfinder. That's not, it's like a rangefinder. It's not through the lens though, right? No, it's not through the lens. Yeah. Speaking of rangefinders, I, I stopped shooting digital for like a year or two other than my iPhone and casual stuff when I picked up film. And when I went back to it, I found it really disconcerting to use EVFs. And what it's kind of helped me is to tell myself, it's just like a rangefinder. I don't need this. I, I don't have a problem not seeing it through the lens with a rangefinder. This is just a rangefinder with a lot more crap on the screen. That's sort of mental, as dumb as that is, that actually helped a lot. And yeah, I don't know, maybe it helps someone else. For me, it's the focus peaking. That is just, that's that's the deal breaker for me. I've been shooting the X-Pro2 recently. And, and one of the coolest things to me about the digital cameras, the mirrorless cameras, the big deal to me is that the a good one, like the Sony or the Fujis, uh, but I can't speak to the Panasonic because I really haven't tried them. I don't pay any, I shoot full manual uh, on exposure. And the, the EVF exposure, the, the, the quality of the image is so good on the EVF. I pay no attention to the scale. I don't look at the plus minus zero. I just adjust it till it looks good. And it it could be that it, it's a little bit dark. It could be it's a little bit light, but it's always exactly where I want it to be. So I, I've just gotten locked into the EVF and, and relying on it for the for the exposure as well as the focus. Paul, are you are you are you shooting raw so that you can make tweaks if you need to? I shoot both, and I I don't I rarely need to make any exposure correction. I mean, sometimes I'll do a uh, a preset, you know, because I'm looking to make something a little bit, a little bit weird, but uh, normally I, I don't need to shoot the RAWs. I don't need to work on the RAWs. Speaking of digital range finders, has anybody had experience with the Pixie camera, the one out of France that kind of looks to be a competitor to Leica or trying to be? A friend of mine is thinking about buying one of those. And there are a couple of downsides to it right now, I think. Correct me if I'm wrong. It does it have external storage? Or was it internal storage only? I think it's both. I know they're working on a new model, so maybe the the most the current model does have internal storage or uh, external storage. I researched it because he asked me my opinion on it, and there were just a few things about it that didn't seem to me to be really the time to buy it. And I, I'm the guy that bought the the uh, 
the Sony RX1 when it first came out that was, you know, fixed lens, 35 millimeter F2, full frame sensor. Uh, it was like $3,000 for a point and shoot camera. So I, I wasn't, uh, this seemed to me too much like that. It just was limited in what it could do. I don't know. It just looks like an uh, interesting product. And, and Matthias uh, Berling, I believe, had a video recently talking about how they've kind of are very much still in development and pushing software updates. And I was curious if, yeah, if there were opinions, good or bad. Since we have a little lull here, we have a few people have joined since we started. Welcoming back is Stephen Grasso. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Stephen goes back with Anthony quite a while. Used to sell cameras. Uh, Adaback, looks like you're connected. Welcome back. Hi. Hey. Uh, Michael. Michael, welcome to the show. Yeah, I shaved my beard off. <laughs> oh! <laughs> How's it going? Oh, it's it's good. I actually just got back from uh, shooting some wildflowers. <laughs> okay. What were you shooting with, Michael? Uh, my Sony a7 II that I just picked up. So Mike sold one. I bought one, but it was a price I couldn't uh, couldn't say no on. I got it for 400. So. And then Phil, even though you've spoken already, we didn't really get to say your name. I don't say your name. Uh, Phil Clark. Okay, Phil. Is this the first time you've been on the show? Yeah, I just recently got caught up listening to the whole awesome all the episodes. So thought I'd hop in. Oh, cool. Well, welcome, welcome back. We got a nice selection of people here that we've seen before. It's always good to have some new faces. We got Greg. We got Greg here too. Greg, what are you? Are you? Are you shooting any digital? Or are you? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, well, you know, I I buy digital for the military, so I'm currently. I just bought the Canon R3 setups, Nikon Z9, and the Sony Alpha ones, and I'm doing a compare and contrast between the three different formats. And uh, I I personally think Sony in the mirrorless game is way ahead of everybody else. I mean, they've been, you know, they're on what? They're like fifth version of the A7. I think so. Yeah. Nikon's been playing catch up with them. Canon's ahead of Nikon, in my opinion. But Sony is just blowing it out of the water with the mirrorless. I mean, they just, they, they make some incredible products. And Sony makes the sensor for the rest of the camera makers. Uh, do you guys recall, this would have been roughly 2000. 2005 sony made the chips for the for the fuji s3s as well as the chips for a lot of the canon point and shoot cameras and uh some of their own products and and they made a lot of the nikon chips too yeah but you remember when the sensors delaminated uh, i don't remember that well the sensors delaminated and happened mostly on the fuji s series the i believe it was the s3 but uh, what, it was a wedding photographer camera because of the color. And it, you were shooting, all of a sudden, all you were getting were purple smears instead of any kind of an image. And it was uh, it happened a lot. I just had a, a, Sony, or a, a Canon A95 that I just picked up in a lot of other stuff, and it had the delaminated sensor. So you just throw them in the trash. But at the time when it happened, Fuji had put a lifetime warranty on it. Oh, wow. If had an S3 that was 10 years old and the sensor went bad, they would replace the sensor. Speaking of sensors, uh, Mark Faulkner posted in the chat an image that he took. He had an IR conversion. Can you want to explain what that what that means? Yeah, so on that, uh, the Panasonic ZS10, there was basically a filter that I went into the camera, pulled the filter off the sensor to allow it to be full spectrum. And this is all due to some stuff that, that Adam Paul, that we a lot of us know, who um, kind of taught me how to do. And then you just basically hold up uh, an IR filter in front of the camera and take the shot and then reverse the channels and, and your editing software of choice later on. Uh, the I think, you, Mike, you were talking about the uh, F828 a little earlier, and that one is a much easier one to do because there is a section on the camera that you can put a magnet on that will then make it full spectrum so you can do the same sort of thing. Yeah, that... Uh... <laughs> 
<laughs> I had a handy in case it came up because if we were gonna, I was going to do a lightning round, but I'm just going to do my own lightning round of, of under the radar cameras. And maybe it's not quite so under the radar, but when it comes to like an older digital camera, that's just cool as hell. The DSC F828, there's so many things that's neat about this camera. I guess it's technically like a bridge camera. It's got this huge honking zoom lens. It's a Carl Zeiss. Uh, Vario sonar, wide open, it's F2, so it's fairly bright. Uh, it goes from 28 to 135. The entire body pivots independently of the lens, so it doesn't have a swinging screen, but just the entire body pivots. The thing Mark's talking about is, so Sony, we all know, bought the digital camera business and film from Konica and Minolta, right? So the last Konica Minolta DSLR became the first alpha, what was it, the A100, I think? Uh, they did very little to change it. But outside of the SLRs, when Sony released like point and shoots, they tried to use some of their camcorder technology. Because if you guys remember late 90s, you know, before Sony was a name in still photography, they were already pretty popular with, with camcorders. So Sony at the time had a feature called Night Shot. And Night Shot was a way you could record video at night and it how it works is it would use an infrared blaster which is essentially just a lamp that emits infrared light so it's it's invisible to the naked eye because we can't see that but it has what mark was talking about all electronic sensors have a visible light filter covering it because when you make a sensor they can detect light far beyond the visible spectrum right so the human eye can see roy g biv but you have ultraviolet you have infrared you have gamma you have all these different kinds of light waves that we can't see well the sensors can detect those problem is if you got all these signals coming into a sensor and it's trying to write a file containing all that information it's not going to look how we see it so all electronic cameras put this filter in front of the sensor that blocks out the light that we don't want, only allowing the visible light to come through. So what Sony did was they had that filter too, just like everybody else did, but they put it on a hinge. So you have the sensor and you have the filter in front of it on a hinge. And when you would enable that mode, the filter would swing out of the way, exposing the naked sensor so that it could see IR light. And if it's in the middle, like a completely dark room, like no light at all, EV negative infinity, the IR blaster on the front of the camera would turn on, the filter moves out of the way, suddenly you have night vision, right? So that's kind of cool. I could, I could spend a lot of time talking about that. But you could only do that when you use the night shot mode, and it won't, won't let you enable that unless the light is low enough, okay? Well, somebody many years ago discovered that if you just take a magnet and put it in a very specific spot on the side of the lens, you can ultimately cause the filter to swing out of the way. But since the camera doesn't know that, it's now allowing the full spectrum of light into the lens. So this camera uses a normal threaded filter ring. All you need to do is just buy a standard IR filter like you would use for IR film, screw it on here, put the magnet on here, moving the sensor out, and boom, you have an IR camera that you don't have to do anything to. So Mark, you had to you had to tear open that Panasonic and hack, like physically remove it. Like so you it can't go back to how it was, right? So if if IR if digital IR is something you want to play with, this is a great camera to try it on because you don't even need to do anything. You literally just remove the magnet, the filter swings back. I think I think you have to actually turn the camera off and back on again. But you could continue to use it like a regular camera. And, and as a regular camera, it's got an eight 
megapixel. It's got the CCD sensor. It's got a Carl Zeiss lens F4, uh, F2. It has a USB port. So we're, you know, as long as you have the right card, uh, you just plug it into any modern computer. It's not old enough to where it won't work with a Windows 10 or a modern Mac computer. There's no problem getting the data off. It writes to RAW. I mean, it's like, I, I, I'm going to keep raving about it because I already have one. I don't have to buy one again. But uh, for anybody who doesn't have this camera, this is this is a really cool one. And the 707 that Paul was talking about has that night shot feature too. It's just, I think that's a five megapixel camera. And I think there was a 717 that had it as well. I think there were a total of three models, but they all have this strange body, kind of looks like an SLR, but it's it, you can't take the lens off or anything. But yeah, this this is this is my pick for under the radar camera that uh, if you want something that's that's got a lot of wow factor and does something that no current digital camera can do, this is this is the one. To go. I picked up an old uh, Nikon D70 and had it converted to IR, and that's a great little camera to do because they're they're dirt cheap and the conversion is only like eighty bucks, and you can pick the. IR spectrum you want. Paul, do you remember when I, you sold DCS cameras, right? The old, yeah. you, in the military, we, there was almost an IR version of every DCS camera released from the 410 on. Yes. And we use those a lot in the military for obvious reasons. And, the, you know, of course, the CIA and the FBI and all them were using them as well. But those were early, early IR cameras that you could buy specifically for that one purpose. They were sold only under GSA contract. You you couldn't, uh, if, a, if a dealer, I was a dealer for the product and I could order them, but I had to supply the GSA contract to, in order to get them to ship it. So I already kind of uh, shared my, the 828 as my under the radar. Does anybody else have any like models that they really, really love, but not an, they don't think a lot of people talk about? My, my, my Bentex K1 which has been my exclusive DSLR for the last seven years. And I have an extended love affair with that camera. It's, you know, it's weather sealed, takes every Pentax lens going back to M42. And uh, I just, I'm never disappointed by what I get out of that camera. I would have one if I could afford one, but uh, for those who can't, uh, the Pentax Q, I already talked about it, but you can adapt anything to it. It's tiny. They're relatively cheap. They're a lot of fun. The, the crop factor is weird. And the best part is all the controls on the back are exactly what you'd have on any other Pentax uh, DSLR. So it's very easy to pick up if you're you're used to that system. Brian, who makes the adapters for those? Are they, you know, photodiox or KNF or? Yep, those guys all do. There is an official Pentax uh, K-mount adapter for it. Ah, okay. But I wouldn't spend the money on that when the photodiox one is just as good. There are also extension tubes, like smart extension tubes and a whole bunch of other um, uh, wonderful accessories for it. Well, I just picked this up and Anthony uh, has convinced me that it's uh, it's a cool camera and, and he's he's really right. This is a Pentax K10, which I think is one that he started with. Absolutely. I still have mine. And the nice thing about it is it'll accept any of the uh, Nikon K lenses. Uh, even This will even accept Pentax 67 lenses with the adapter. 10 megapixels. You know, it's a bulky camera, but you know, I've been comparing it to an Nikon D200, which is is similar, and it's actually I think a nicer camera than the D200 as far as the the operation and what it's actually can do. And it has really nice color rendition. Yeah, it was a I believe it was a CC. I think it was a CCD. Correct. And yeah, the the quality on the color was excellent. You know, I, I get a little bit into the weeds. The most under the radar, the most obscure camera I've ever owned, I think, in digital. I actually own three of them that were the Sigma Merrells. They were a Foveon sensor, which was a stacked sensor. It was three sensors, all three of which were 14 megapixels each. 
So it was a 42 megapixel file and they were extremely high resolution. They were a fixed, fixed lens. They made three models, a one, two, and a three. They were a wide angle, a normal, and a tele, and a very short telephoto. And the, the quality of the image was just fantastic, but you had to use a proprietary program software in order to be able to open the image because of the, the odd file type. So they didn't stay around very long, but that was really cool. Those three sensors, were they linear or were they like, I mentioned the, the Minolta RD175 earlier, because that, that used two sensors to grab, to capture green and one sensor to capture red and blue, and they combined it. No, they were, they were just stacked. They were stacked sensors. So somehow or other, the, the firmware and the body would allow the sensors to work to, together. They worked, in, they worked as a sequence. It wasn't actually extrapolated. It was actually a 42 megapixel camera. It wasn't 14 megapixels done three times. It was actually stacked. Uh, so the, the resolution on them was fantastic, but they, they never quite got the, uh, the software to be able to work right. And then it came out with another model called a Quattro, which was also the Foveon sensor, but it, it had some, some differences too. Well, I'm going to put my friend Stephen on the spot. We I know that Stephen had been... Uh, shooting and very much a fan of the the Fuji, or the, the fixed lens cameras with the different emulations. But he's he's recently made the leap into the uh, fixed lens Leicas, and so I was just wondering if you wanted to talk for just a just a little bit about your impression about what it was like shooting the uh, the Leica versus the Fuji. Yeah, it's a world of difference. I mean, I, I like that Fuji camera a lot. I had an X100F, which was the series before the current one, which is the V. I brought that camera when we were in Canada last time. I carry around all the time. And, you know, it had the film simulations in it. At the time I was using that camera, I didn't realize you could tweak it to emulate other types of films. So it was only the, the Fuji film that I was playing around with. And then after drinking the Leica Kool-Aid, buying a camera from Paul, it, that just went down the road to a, a Q2 monochrome. And I actually didn't even know what a Q2 was. And I happened to be uh, on a trip, an overland trip, and a friend of mine who's a commercial photographer had rented one and he put the regular Q2 in my hand. And I'm like, what is this? And he's like, well, check it out. It's a Leica fixed lens camera. And I, I was like, oh yeah, it's okay. And I didn't really know anything about it. And he goes, they make a monochrome version. And I, they've always intrigued me, monochrome cameras. So I started to do some research into it and ended up buying one. And that camera goes with me to a lot of places. I absolutely love that. Bill, it's a 28 millimeter, but it's actually probably closer to a 26 on the Q2 monochrome. And then I sold the X100F and ended up buying an X-Pro3 because I realized then I could start to, the, the sensor is a little bit different in that, the, the software is different, and you can tweak it to try to emulate a bunch of other film stocks. And you don't know how accurate it is, but the results are kind of cool. And there's a lot of, you know, Instagrammers that are using the X100V now and YouTubers, and it's kind of got like this cult following, so much so that Fuji stopped production on them, they couldn't fill the orders. But I'm a big fan of the, the fixed lens Leica cameras, and I if money wasn't an option, I'd probably have a standard Q2 or wait for the Q3 to come out. But it, I, I like, yeah, I told Anthony the other day we were talking, it's just the more I shoot digital, the harder it is for me to wrap my head around shooting film anymore. And I used to love the process of developing film and now I, not so much. I just sent some images to get printed from um, Whitewall and they came back fantastic looking from that, that Q2 monochrome that some landscapes I shot out in uh, Death Valley. And I'm going to, I had the proofs done. I'm actually going to have them printed to a much larger size and frame them. But yeah, I love that camera. It, it's fantastic. It's expensive. You know, it's, it's definitely kind of a frivolous purchase, really. But 
the image quality is incredible. Well, I know that, that like Clyde Butcher, after he had a stroke, he had to put aside his his large format cameras and he started shooting the uh, the M version of the monochrome. And I got to talk to his his daughter and his uh, his his the, the head of his darkroom about it. And they're able to take those 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 files out of that uh, the M monochrome and print them as large as they were printing from his 11 by 17. And I mean, I saw palladium prints done off of the uh, the M monochrome and maybe you could tell they were digital, but I don't think that most people would know that they were digital. I mean, they were incredibly rich photographs. Yeah, and the M10 monochrome is kind of the gold standard for monochrome cameras, I think, you know, even more so than the, the Q2 monochrome. The sensor's better. I have an M10, you know, the, the, the original M10, and I love that camera as well, but it's a completely different experience than shooting the Q because the Q is, besides being a fixed lens camera, it's an EVF, you know, there's autofocus. It's completely, completely different. But I love the images coming out of it, and I've shot fifty thousand ISO really clean, and it's it's great. Uh, just jumping back onto a point that Anthony was making, that if you could tell if it was digital or not digital, does it really matter? Yeah, you know, if you can tell or can't tell, isn't the minute image the end that you're trying to achieve the bit? Because I keep hearing this that people are going back to the early digicams because they're film-like. I think it's a particular look they're after, not specifically because it was film. It's just coincidentally probably more aligned to film, but it's it's a particular look where we don't necessarily want to be able to see all the details in a, in a photo. Any good photo that's been you know, done well generally has selective areas where you can see clearly and you can't see clearly so you can actually sort of see the subject properly. So, I mean, that, that intrigues me where, where people say, oh, I'm going back to early digital because it's more like film. I don't think so. It's just a different... You know where I think that came from, Theo, was from printing. Because I have a cousin who's a fine art photographer, and he used to argue all the time with me about how you, you're never going to get a print from a digital camera that looks like it's from a film camera. And this was going back a while ago. The technology now, I, he's told me recently, he goes, I can't tell. So I think that's where a lot of that argument started from, because you're right, it, it's really not the quality, because the quality is the resolving power of the lens, let's be honest. Mm. It, it's it's the look that they're getting. And I just recently read an article where there's a photographer who's now emulated the look of the X100V by just using presets in some sort of editing, like whether it was Lightroom or Photoshop. So I really, truly believe you're correct. It's the look that people are trying to achieve, not necessarily uh, whether they can tell the difference or not. But I also feel like a lot of people are going back to analog because of the process. So to kind of tie those two threads together, does anybody have experience with an Epson RD1, which is a M mount digital with a manual wind shuttercock, like old school? I've never seen one, but I think they look awesome. They were a pain to use. I did shoot with one uh, and I, I didn't keep it very long. It, but considering the time, I mean, for the time when it was out, it was it was as good as anything else out there. But it was just it was just sort of an it wasn't fish and it wasn't foul, if you know what I mean. It was just an it was just an odd camera. I, I think I just read they stopped stopped supporting them. They literally just stopped supporting it. And people are like, I didn't know they were still doing it at all. But apparently, they committed uh, a little while. It looks like it was on sale two thousand four to seven. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not sure how they did that because that was at the time when Konica also was using the M mount on their Hex RF camera. So Leica must have licensed both Epson and Konica to use the lens mount. 
That's, that's the only thing I can think of. Because they had no problem with Voigtlander making lenses, but uh, I, I don't think they really wanted a body uh, to be out there. So they, they must have done some kind of uh, licensing arrangement with them. Most likely, they just didn't see it as a threat and said, go for it, you know? That's that's very, very likely. It. Put more bodies using our mount, people will buy lenses. Well, Leica, they came out with the RM8. Uh, yeah, M8 was the uh, their first uh, rangefinder digital that I can remember with interchangeable lenses. And uh, that was actually about the same time as the uh, as the RD1, as I recall. But coming back to the point about it being the process, and, and Brian had a really good point there in terms of the manual manual uh, wind on the on the Epson. I mean, that, that could be one of the things people are interested in, but I, I never actually understood that why you would want it to be that way. I mean, there was that big uh, Yashika kerfuffle that came up a couple of years ago where the owners of the trade name released a camera where you drop in cartridges for the different simulations. And that, obviously that got slammed because the quality of the make was just atrocious. But it sold out very quickly though. People actually just wanted to do the process, which is which is actually quite bizarre that people want to go into a more uncomfortable process. I think it's it depends hugely on on your age and and your experience with it. So I I did, I developed in a dark room in high school, but we also had cameras like the Quick Take 100 and 200 lying around. So I'm right on the edge of that. And since getting into film, I, you know, digital cameras, when I pick it up, don't really do much for me. They don't feel that good in the hand. There's no button feedback. There's no mechanical funness. There's no historical angle. Like I would, I've actually toyed with the idea of filling up my SD cards so that I only have 36 images on it because <clears throat> I don't want to have to edit 500 images. I don't want to see, I just want to take 30 good ones and blacking out the screen on the back because I don't want to look at it after I take each one. Have you shot a Leica MD? I have not, no. So that's like picking up a film camera. The only thing that it lacks is a, an advanced lever and a re rewind knob. There's no screen on the back and it's a rangefinder. So, but then I come down to like, well, why would I do that and give up developing, which is fun and pay 10 times as much than for a, you know, old SLR? Because you, I, I mean, like you can look at it both ways. You're not buying film, you're not buying chemicals. You do the developing process in post because you're shooting a digital negative. I mean, you can look at it both ways. To me, that that's where my head went, you know? Like, and I've been shooting film. I mean, I stopped recently, but I started in the late 70s and I put my share of film through developing tanks, and including sheet film. And I'm, honestly, I don't really miss it. And I even, you know, between Anthony got me hooked on it and I bought developing tanks and all this stuff. And I was like, yeah, I'm not going back to this. It's like, Oh, I, I just think, you know, getting, pulling the, the negatives out of the reel is so magic and opening the email from a lab, whatever, that does nothing for me. Uh, but everybody's different. But that's kind of what we were talking about at the top of the show is that, you know, it's it's different for everybody, you know, I mean, and, and the great thing is you can still do both. There's nothing wrong with saying I don't ever want to shoot film again. Like, I get it. When, when wedding photographers say that is ridiculous, I'm never doing that again, I, I understand that. I just took out my camera just the other day and, and my wife's like, could you bring your digital camera with? And I'm like, yeah, sure. You know, sometimes shooting the old film cameras where it worked last time I touched it, but this 70 year old, you know, Leica isn't always going to work every time the same way. And, and I hate scanning. I just loathe it. I know you could do the, the full frame digital scannings with a bellows extension and whatever people like to use. And supposedly you get amazing images out of it. I use a flatbed scanner. You can get a Naritsu. Paul, you just played with one of those real cheapo where it's like a little box and you just stick the film in there and it kind of takes a picture of the negative. And 
it's not as good as you hope it will be but it's better than it could be you know kind of type thing i just i hate it i don't like but you know developing's fun though you know like i love the tactile feel of a of an old camera you know the metal the wine lever you know but sometimes i just want to shoot a picture and not have to think about that stuff so I think that's what's so cool about today. You have digital is officially old enough that you have vintage digital, right? If you want to jump through hoops and still shoot digital, get one of the quick takes. You know, there's tons of hoops to jump through with that, right? But then you could just go get a a brand new Fuji and take some fantastic looking images that look awesome. So I think that to have this wide range of options is, is super cool. And that's why I love this hobby. And there's no wrong way to do anything. You know, in fact, sometimes doing things the wrong way is how you get, there's so many just awesome options. That's where you get that term gas from. Cause it's like, you guys are repping off these digital models and I'm searching for them as you talk about, I'm like, Nope, don't have that kind of money. Don't, don't have that kind of money. Uh, the Foveon, how much How much do those cameras cost today, Paul? I think when I bought them, they were in the $300 price range used, and now they're in the six. Oh, 600 600 used. Okay. I thought you were going to say something ridiculous. Like, that's a $5,000 camera. No, no, they're, they're, they're not that much, but they, they're they twice as much as they were when I sold yeah. them eight, nine years ago. Try and get one of those Epsons, though. Yeah, Epsons are not a problem. They're, they're expensive. Does anybody else have any kind of under-the-radar digital cameras that... I'm going to make a prediction here. I reckon the next big thing is going to be old digital bridge cameras. <laughs> because, yeah, I'm, a, I'm being tongue-in-cheek here. But, I mean, that is a... The super zooms? Yeah. There is a particular model that sort of went under the radar for quite a while. It was very popular for quite a while. We, we sort of touched on it with the Sonys when we were talking about the infrared and the magnets and so on. But these cameras, I mean, if you think about what they did, was they were an optical zoom. They're all in one package. You didn't have to take extra lenses and they had the convenience of digital. And I shot with this. I've got a uh, Fuji Film FinePix S here, 14 megapixel camera, which I actually bought for my son originally. The Fuji bridge cameras, those were really nice. I remember my friend had one of those. And it, it takes great pictures. And interesting enough, when I talk to my wife and she says, oh, you know, can I, can I shoot with a camera today? And I said, yeah, what, what, what would you like? And, you know, I've got, you know, you look behind me and I've got like <laughs> thousands of cameras here. I think, yeah, I think I could spare one. Theo opens his trench coat. And he's like, <laughs> what do you want? I got it all. And she says, oh, I'd, I'd like to shoot with that Fuji bridge camera because that's what actually she felt most comfortable with. And I wouldn't be surprised if these start becoming quite popular again, purely purely because the, the digicams, the small ones, they'll be popular for quite a while. They're handy. They're superb. They do fantastic results. Great for parties. But I, I think there will be a, a bit of a, a shift where these will become popular. And just remember, I predicted it and I could be setting a trend. There was a guy on Reddit last week who was looking for a uh, like an interesting old Zoom. And uh, I think some of the film uh, kind of cameras of that type may also experience a little popular. He thought the AZ-1 was the coolest thing ever. And I'm like, really? That wouldn't be my first choice, but hey. I, th- I think that a lot of the older digital cameras are coming back in popularity, honestly. I, and as people start to discover the look, the look of some of these cameras, like like you were saying on Reddit, they're talking now about the original Fuji X100 because the sensor, the, the image quality looks completely different. So those things, you couldn't give them away a while ago, and now they're they're getting top dollar from them because they became popular all of a sudden. So that's that's kind of a topic I wanted to talk about too, is 
the, the digicam craze, you know, with the point and shoots. And we could sit here and talk about the look. We can sit here and compare CMOS versus CCD sensors and one and two third crop sensors versus one inch sensors. But that subset of people who are buying those cameras, I guarantee you they don't understand any of that. So is it is it just truly that they are, we've officially hit that point where there are young adults out there who only know photography through a smartphone, that there is an appeal of a thing that's got buttons on it that we call a camera that takes pictures. Is that is that all it is? Or is there more to it that I just, I'm missing? I think you're partway there. I think some of it's nostalgia because I think some of the people who are collecting that stuff now, they remember their parents having those cameras when they were kids. I think that's a lot of it from what I've seen. Because I mean, I'm 44 and nostalgia for me is my dad with a Canon T70, you know, like, so that was as a kid, that was the camera that I nostalgia sized over, but take someone who's 21, let's say, and you're right. I mean, they're going to remember the the Olympus Epic Stylus, you know, digitals or whatever the hell they were called. And it's, it's like everybody wants to multitask, but then sometimes you want a single tap. Do we really need one device that does everything when we could have this little this little box that all it does is take pictures, you know, and and, and they still look good because let's be honest, to Instagram a picture, a four megapixel sensor is going to look just as good as a 40. That's the only venue you're displaying them, I mean. So yeah, I think it's nostalgia is heavily driving it. So I guess my question would be, I had hoped to get someone on the show that currently works in a camera store to, to kind of tell us, but uh, I've heard that you can't keep these things on the shelves. Is it, are there specific models or is it just any digital digital camera from that era as a hot commodity? There is a few models which are quite interesting. Obviously the Lumix models, when you start getting to the LXs and and some of the TZ models, which are made for travel, they, they fly off the shelves from what I can see. It's also, you start some of the old Canon power shots, they're, they're really popular. There seems to be two trains of thoughts on these as well. Some people go for the the ones that can only shoot the JPEGs and, and all those kind of uh, files. Some people go for the ones that can actually do RAW as well. So they're, they're, there's a wide range of them, but there's something that sort of fits for everybody. But what I've seen is, I, I, I look at eBay, obviously looking for cameras. I see that the actual Digicams turning over a lot faster than any other vintage stuff these days. I think there's two, two reasons for that. That. And just to go back to the reasons before we talk about niche models, one is, you know, they're handy, they're easy to use, nostalgia and so on. But the other one is they separate from using your phone for, for process. So we talked about process earlier. And what tends to happen is say, you know, you're going out night in town with your friends and you take pictures on your phone, they end up on your phone and, and nine times out of 10, pictures taken on the phone, stay on the phone, no one ever looks at them again, they may get posted occasionally and so on but taking them on a little digital camera you're actually having to download them and put them somewhere and you're actually creating an album of sorts even if it's a folder on a, on a computer and I think people like that separation it makes it easy for them to sort of go back to what they were photographing and having the good quality of the the digicams just just adds to that appeal as well because it's not actually inconvenient to use them are there digicam podcasts out there where there's a bunch of Gen Z nerdier versions of like us talking about, I love the process. I have to use this gold plated USB a cable plugging into my. It's not a podcast. No, it's, it's on Reddit. And you guys are discounting the power of the influencer because the whole trend from Fujifilm 
selling out the X100V was from TikTok videos. It were these young girls that picked up these cameras and started producing these film-like look images. And th that's where this all came from. It, it's the power of TikTok and Instagram that Fuji sold out of these. They, they, stopped, they stopped selling them because they couldn't keep up with the demand. So that I sold my X100F in like 10 minutes. If, when you see an X100V go up on the photo market on Reddit, it's, they're instantly it's gone. For more than the camera retail. And they're $500 over retail. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's I, I don't think that that's anything more than, what we're missing on this podcast is the 20-something-year-old to talk about who influences them in photography. So I want to add one more theory to the pot for why the popularity of digicams and maybe the popularity of film. And I, I will admit that I think I fall into this category when I started film. I'm not a photographer, an artist by nature. Everybody in my whole life has told me I suck at art. And if I picked up an iPhone and wanted to be a photographer with that, I'm competing against the best guys in the world and all of the software. And I don't have an iPhone 12 or 15 or whatever the hell it is. Like, I'm never going to be good. Nobody's ever going to look at my shit. But if I make an image with an old digital camera or a digicam, people will look at it and, and it might not be the greatest image to start, but they'll be like, oh, wow, that's that's cool. Like, you know, there's it kind of changes the, the field of competition in some sense, or at least in the mind of the person maybe doing it. And I think, you know, a lot, I've kind of emerged from that view. I don't try to take pictures that are just film good anymore or but I, but I feel like there's that, that you know, in today's world of, of perfection and highly automated images and all the stuff an iPhone can do, leaning into something that doesn't do that, that gives you room to kind of maybe not be as good, but in a field where none of it's that good. I think there's something in kind of rejecting that perfection. Well, I'll tell you, I want to speak to these people. So I don't know any 20-something people. <laughs> I, I don't know how to tap into that market. I, I'm looking at Anthony who uh, works in a, no, he's shaking his head. Uh, <laughs> how do hope and yeah, I don't, I don't know how to, I mean, I'm looking around and we're all, we're all geezers. Yeah. I work at a university, so I could actually go up to people, but I don't think it's a really good form to start walking up to random students at <laughs> university. Asking questions we would like, like to this. talk to you about your cameras. Do you like, do you like cameras? Come talk to us. Well, you know, the irony is I'm working with, with 20 somethings every day and see, you know, quite a few every day. And I'm not, I'm not seeing people shooting with digicams. You know, I am seeing people shooting with old film cameras because I sell film and we get a lot of people buying that Cosmo film every day at the shop. But I'm just not, I'm not seeing people showing up with old elves and cool pics. So what that tells me though, is there's, there's not a crossover. The people that are into film, it is a completely different subset than the people in these digicams. And that's why like me, per, I mean, I, I don't, I hope nobody listening to this thinks like we're out of touch. That's, that's, and maybe I am, but I just don't know how to get into that market because like i don't know those people. i have a theory that the people that anthony's talking about that are shooting film they're the they're the young photographers they're photographers the ones that are shooting the digicams for the most part and i'm probably going to sound like you said an old geezer that's biased they're not photographers they're people that want to emulate their influencers and they want that cool look and they want to show up to a party and you know what these digicam cameras now the modern ones there's an app on your phone within a minute of shooting a bunch of pictures you're emailing them out to your friend from your phone so i think that's the difference i think what anthony's experience is he's seeing these kids that, that want to be photographers that probably listen to this podcast that probably are researching film they want to get into larger you know they they're into it and i think that it's a different group completely that's my theory anyway my always my thought was that it was the people who were into lamography and were shooting you know canon sure shots and uh 
Yashica Electro 35 GSNs and film got to be too expensive and it was too much aggravation, you know, to get it developed. So they decided to transfer over to, to uh, Digicams, but it was the same group. Yeah, I think they sell their soul and go buy a, like an M9, you know, that that's what, the experience I have with those guys that were like shooting the Electros and things like that, or the, I mean, the CL, for instance, like they're the ones posting on the Leica form and Reddit going, I really wish I could find an M9 with a good sensor or an M8 because the CCD, you know, they like that look. So we're going to announce episode, the next episode of the Camerosity podcast. We're going to get Taylor Swift and, uh, you know, Kim Kardashian is going to come on and they're going to help us connect with, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but no, we do need to wind down, but there is one more topic that I kind of wanted to see what you guys were thinking of. We've seen a ton of innovation, right? I mean, the digital camera history from 1999 to today has moved faster and done more technological leaps than the film industry did in the first 150 years it existed. Uh, digital SLRs have almost completely been defunct due to digital mirrorless. The amazing abilities that cameras now have connect wirelessly and shoot at ridiculously high ISOs. I was so excited when I discovered that the Z5, you can charge the battery in the camera by just plugging it into a USB port. Like I can take my cell phone charger, plug it into the camera and it charges the battery. Dumb, because smartphones have been doing that for a long time, but I no longer have to keep pulling the battery out and plug it into a charger. Anyway, so the question I have is where do we go from here? What's the future? What's coming next? Is there anything coming next? Will traditional cameras go away completely? Have we kind of hit that point where we're at will continue to, to evolve slowly? Is our... It's Nikon, you know, we, one of you guys said is way behind Sony. Uh, is it too little, too late? Like, you know, Steven, what do you think? Like, what, where, where are we going to be 10 years from now? I think you're going to see the integration of more AI into cameras. So if you look at some of these things that are out there now, like Impossible Things, which is this editing company where you can buy credits and send images to them and they, they do AI editing, I think you're going to see that starting to be integrated into the processors of some of these cameras where instead of just shooting out a JPEG, it's got a few tweaks that the AI will take over and you could have it much more process coming out of the camera. We saw that with the Samsung phones, didn't, haven't we? The, the moon pictures. Yeah. Where they're literally replacing portions of the moon so that you get a, a picture of the moon. And also the latest Sony A7R5 also have some kind of AI. I mean, in some sense, Samsung and Apple are the, the biggest camera makers in the world right now with the phones. And that's the future. So if I take a, self, a picture of myself, the camera's like, that dude's ugly. I'm going to replace him with a with Chris Helm's face. What's his name? Marquis Lee Brown has a, a video analysis of, of the top phones, and he done some camera bake-off. And he has examples of it changing his skin texture, changing the lighting on his face. It's really weird. It's disconcerting. But when they get that right in, you know, six more months... Uh, maybe it'll be something. So it's a lot better than the old Sonys that did the dust removal and used to remove the stars from the sky. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> also, I think we forgot to talk about the compact digital camera Ricoh GR3, which is one of the uh, best cameras that we've used. Very small, pocketable APS-C sensor, 28 millimeter lens. Is that the one where you can swap out the sensor and the lens in one no, piece? No, no. That was the first version of this, but this is GXR. Lens, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lens, very small. I bet the quality is awesome on this. They've got a cult following, those cameras. Yeah. The great camera for street. A lot of people yeah. are using that for street. 
I, I think the other trend, if you guys know who Light Lens Lab is, you heard that? Is that the camera that has like 20, 20 lenses or something? No, this is a manufacturer out of China that that's uh, knocking up while well, they're reproducing old Leica lenses. And they've done the 50 Sumicron, the LCAN that was made for the Army, the Canadian Army. And they just released a Cook Speed Pancro 2, 50 F2, which was a cinema lens. I think you're going to see more of this. They did the 28.63 also that was... Yeah, amazing. But this guy, it's it's one older man, and uh, he's, he's he isn't it isn't a production line. I mean, it's these are handmade lenses, and they're priced accordingly. I mean, they're not they're not inexpensive. No, they're not. And I actually, yeah, I'm going to order that Speed Pancro. I've got I'm on a list from the U.S. distributor, and it's about 800 bucks retail for that lens. But I think you're going to see more of that. An idea I had, I brought up in a previous show, one of the one of the ones we were talking about this before. People have, have been trying for the past 20 years to try and make a film digital hybrid camera. And, and what I would love to see somebody do is make a brand new film camera with a traditional film back, film gate, film shutter, but have a reflex mirror. But instead of a pentaprism, put an EVF up there and make that be the digital sensor. So in theory, you could have a camera that can expose through a traditional mechanical mirror, or maybe even a Pelix mirror of some kind, where you're exposing film through the back of the camera, but you're also simultaneously capturing a digital image. There was there actually there was one of those, Mike. Was I, there? Yep. Yep. I can't remember right now who it was, but there was someone who did that. They really they the sensor in the prism. Put the sensor in the prism, yeah. yeah. And it would capture from the prism. It was actually a prism, but it it had a, a there was a a capture device that uh, that took the image off the focusing screen. So I think that would be great if I could have everything uh, a great the equivalent of a of a mirrorless. But what if I want to load in film, I could just optionally do that. I think that would be cool. Um, I agree. AI is definitely going to play a part in it. We've seen these Chinese manufacturers pumping out these the dream the Canon Dream Lens was f o nine you can get f095 in every mount nowadays you're getting uh 24 millimeter f18 lenses you're getting telephoto super fast just these designs that 20 years ago didn't even exist and some of these lenses are now being made with technologies that didn't exist before i have uh my smartphone is a samsung galaxy it's got a thing called night mode i can take handheld pictures three second exposures of my cat in at nighttime in the living room and it comes out in focus it's not blurry at all i don't know how the hell it works it's got to be some kind of ai figuring something out in there but uh the technology is getting cooler but in terms of camera design i don't know i don't know what's going to change i mean i really like the nikons i really do like what fuji's doing with the the medium format digital cameras but they're prohibitive in price though so that's already like a a niche thing that's not gonna that's not gonna reinvent anything. I'd like to see a digital cartridge that I could add into like my old Voigtlander camera and be able to use that camera with a digital cartridge and that's it. There was a push to do that a few years ago. I remember 10 or 15 years ago, somebody was developing that very thing. It was like a cartridge that had the electronics in it and then had a CCD that went over the uh, where the film came was. There's a guy still doing that. I think he calls it the I'm back and he's been working on it for like 10 years, but uh, I've seen the results and it's not very impressive considering the amount of time into it. Oh, no, there were, there were been several in production. A friend of mine has one. I've played with it. It was is very poor quality. Well, th how the IMBAC works, it's actually taking a photograph of the ground glass. That's how it works. It's the sensors actually behind the camera below it, pointing up into a tube into the film gate, and it's taking a picture 
of a ground glass and the film plane. That's why the quality is so low in those things. It's not really, because if you think about it, if, if you mount the sensor anywhere other than in the film plane, you're, it's never going to focus correctly. So it replaces the back of the camera, puts a piece of ground glass where the film plane should be, and through a system of mirrors or prisms, I don't, I've never seen one in person, but it's taking a photograph of the focused image on a ground glass. Well, I think one of the problems too is, like you said, it, I, I don't think it conveys, but it has like a big hub on the back, like right behind the film plane, and it looks unusable because I the guy was posting on a, on a Facebook group a while ago, and I asked, I was like, how do you how do you get your face to the prism on an SLR? And he made some snide joke and i was like well this guy's clearly not serious and the the big problem is that you can't really make one that works the way we would all like it to because the distance from the edge of the film canister to the opening of the film gate is not the same on every camera and so you basically are gonna in order to have like a universal film cartridge that's digital not only do you need an insanely flexible and thin sensor that you can put where film was meant to go but it also has to be variable distance and geometry with respect to the cartridge. And then in addition to all that, let's just say you get all that to work and it works exactly how you think it should. The quality is exactly great. There's no way to couple that to the shutter release. You essentially have to put the camera in bulb and just leave the shutter open. Now there is a there is a trick. The uh, the guy who was doing the film back, uh, you listen for the mirror going up. So it's using audio, like sonar, to detect. That can't be accurate though. How there's no way that's accurate though. Oh, it is because if because it doesn't matter. You don't need uh, just a. You can just record the entire experience. And if you have, you know, all you need is one good frame. So you just take a whole bunch. That's true. It's so it's recording like a video, a high speed video kind of clip, and just picking the frame where it was the ideal. So uh, sorry, I'll just I'll just pick up a digicam. Yeah, me too. What are we doing? So if we can't get Taylor Swift and Kim Kardashian next episode, what are we going to do? Well, we had written down something called cameras with a strap. And for the life of me, I can't remember what that means. I think it might mean the camera that that we that are welded to our shelf, things that we won't get rid of. That's right. Yeah. What is if you had to ungas yourself? What is the camera you you you're gonna keep? The one that defines you? We you know your favorite? Because I mean, I have so many. I mean, I'd have to. That'd be just. I don't know if I could do that. <laughs> Why don't we set that as homework for everybody that wants to call in next week? Yeah, we we definitely have a couple ideas on the plate for the next couple episodes. Nothing's really written in stone. It, to be honest with you, it rarely is. After 45 episodes, you guys would be shocked at how rarely we actually know what we're going to do ahead of time. And, and when we do figure it out, usually it's only days before. But uh, we definitely want to do a Kanika episode. We definitely want to do more ha uh, half frame. People have given us some great suggestions. They want to hear more about panoramas. People want to hear more about specific lenses. Um, I'm going to be a broken horse here and say, if there's something you want to hear us talk about, jump on the show. Let us know what we're going to do. We're actually coming up on 50 episodes, which will probably hit by the beginning of June. I, ju I, I jump on every week and I still can't get us to talk about Kodak. Yeah, well, <laughs> you got your great flex episode <laughs> i almost brought up the codex c875 but i, I was just listening <laughs> well, thanks for not doing that i suppose nobody brought up those uh those litro film cameras that record on the light ray spectrum not megapixels those are kind of interesting but very short-lived the litros made two cameras one was like a, a lipstick container and then one was like a little kind of like one of those bridge slr type things but they recorded on like a light ray spectrum and the interesting thing about that is that you could change the focus in post-production that was pretty much the only gimmick they had i was at the south by southwest launch for that is it like a cube no well yeah, they had one was a cube and one that was lipstick and and yeah they they were like experimenting with underwater photography with it because you could change 
the focus after you've taken the picture of what was in focus. The interesting thing is uh, I saw a YouTube video and apparently they tried to make a giant cinematic camera and it was like the size of a car and it would, it would do the same thing, but at a much greater level, you could like really hone in on very specific focal planes. And it was so expensive. It basically just drove them out of business. I have a cool review coming up tomorrow. Theo just did the Minolta RD-175, which is awesome. You don't normally get to see those cameras with full in-depth reviews. And when even the rare times people do talk about them, they almost never have real shot but we've uh we do need to wind down i want to thank you guys for coming greg it's always good to see you uh phil i'm glad you're able to finally join hopefully you'll come back again mark is always it's always awesome to see you on the show adaback welcome back uh michael gossett the no beard man just threw me off i'm really sorry i didn't recognize you when you first jumped on andrew smith is always great to have you on the show brian howard awesome to see you back again uh brian contacted me uh through the website a couple weeks ago and i was like you should come on the show you should come on the show so you've come twice in a row so it's awesome to have you on and steven uh you've been on before you did the uh the camera show or the the camera store episode i think was the first time you were on steven was the guy who bought the f the m5 from paul during the recording of the show show is it that's right isn't it yes i'm remembering that correctly yeah okay so that's an infamous point in our history more, more, more infamous than you might imagine yes this was fun definitely out of out of our wheelhouse a little bit we kind of were all over the place but there's a lot to talk about with digital cameras digital photographies digital ir jpeg versus raw mirrorless versus dslr crop sensors the early history digicams i i, I wanted to ask about how people post process i we could save that for some other time uh we got a little bit into the future of it, but uh, I think there's a lot of exciting things happening. There's a, certainly a plethora of cool models out there. The LXs that people are worth looking into, you know, the point and shoots are only going to keep getting more popular and more expensive. If you have one sitting in a closet somewhere, people, and it works, sell it. You're probably going to make a decent amount of money for it. You guys, thank you all for coming and uh, we will see you guys in two weeks. So good night, everybody. Good night. Take care. Good night. Good night. Thanks, everyone. Bye. guys agree to my new terms yet? Otherwise I may stop allowing you to use my branding on your show. My lawyer wants to know your email address.